Hello and welcome to this late night primary slash emergency edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Both Ohio and Indiana held primary elections on Tuesday. J.D. Vance won the marquee race of the evening, the highly competitive Ohio Senate Republican primary. He was endorsed by former President Trump late in the game, which appeared to give him a boost amongst Ohio Republicans. We're recording at about a quarter past 10 with 80% of the vote in. He's at around 30% of the vote. Josh Mandel trails him at 24% and Matt Dolan is at 22%. So as you can tell, clearly a very divided race, which we're gonna get into. He will face Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan in the general this fall. Of course, the other news is that Monday night, Politico published a leaked draft opinion in the Mississippi abortion case facing the Supreme Court. The draft showed a majority of the justices, five conservatives, in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade's precedent of a constitutional right to abortion. Chief Justice John Roberts said that while the draft is authentic, it does not represent a final decision or a final vote by any member. This news has nonetheless ricocheted across the country. We're gonna talk about what it could mean in practice and in politics. Here with me to discuss is politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Hey, y'all. Hey, another late night podcast. Thanks thanks for staying up late with me. The first of many. First of many. This is officially primary season. How quickly we forget Texas. I know, I know we had Texas. I know. We d- we also had a late night primary pod for that as well, as folks might remember. But it was sort of eclipsed by the State of the Union. So once again, we have a late night primary podcast sort of eclipsed by a different news event. Also here with us is senior writer and legal reporter Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Good evening, Galen. Okay, so we have a lot to cover and it's already late. So we're gonna try to motor through this. But first and foremost, Nathaniel, how should we decipher the meaning of Vance's victory tonight? Maybe framed another way, how many notches does Trump need in his primary belt to claim that this is his party through and through? Well, I think he's gonna need more notches than this because as we always say at 538, don't overreact to just one race, just one poll, look at averages, look at aggregates. This really was kind of just the beginning of a long primary cycle for Republicans and kind of there are gonna be several tests of Trump's endorsement power later on in places like Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Georgia. So we should reserve judgment, but no doubt this is a good first step for the president, former president. Vance would not have won, I think, without Trump's endorsement. He was languishing at third place in the polls for much of the campaign. And then Trump kind of came out of left field and endorsed him. And he definitely saw a, not huge perhaps, but meaningful and certainly sufficient jump in the polls after that. And he was able to defeat not only the former frontrunner, uh, Josh Mandel, who was backed by Ted Cruz and the powerful Republican super PAC, the Club for Growth, but also a more anti-Trump or at least kind of non-Trump aligned Republican, Matt Dolan, a wealthy businessman and co-owner of the Cleveland Guardians. And so Trump was able to push his candidate over the finish line today. He's going to get a new ally in the Senate, most likely. Republicans are favored to win this seat in the fall. It's not a sure thing, I guess. But given Ohio's red lean plus the Republican national environment, I think it's a a pretty good bet. 
And this is particularly important, I think, because the former senator, or I should say the, the outgoing senator, Rob Portman, whose retirement kind of precipitated this uh, wide open primary, he was much more establishment aligned. He was a, a Bush Republican who worked for both Bushes, in fact, and was certainly more skeptical, let's say, of the direction that Trump was taking the party. Does everyone here agree that Basically, this is at least one notch in Trump's belt. I mean, ultimately, just to play devil's advocate here, J.D. Vance only got 30 percent of the vote. The vote was super fractured across all of these different candidates. I mean, is there also a signal in in all of this information that the Republican Party has lots of different ideas of what it might want to be? That's a really good point, Galen. I mean, something we were talking about earlier is there is kind of this contradiction this evening where someone like Vance had Trump's endorsement, wins that primary versus Governor Mike DeWine, who won his primary. And if you remember in 2020, earned Trump's ire by not being emphatic enough about wanting to explore the 2020 election results and see if there was a victory in there for Trump. That said, though, DeWine didn't end up getting 50 percent of the vote which does suggest, you know, for an incumbent governor, this wasn't a resounding victory for him either. I think, though, it is important to look at someone like Vance, both winning his primary tonight and someone like DeWine, because it does point to multiple versions of the Republican Party. And ultimately, though, when we're looking at Trump's endorsement record, tonight was a really good night for him. I think the one big caveat, though, to that is of the endorsements Trump made tonight, and he made 12 endorsements, Vance was really the only risky one. The one outstanding there is Madison Gilbert. She has shrunk her lead and hasn't been called yet in that race. But otherwise, Trump has a really good record tonight. But by the same token, it was really Vance that was only the risky bet, which kind of makes it harder than to extrapolate more than that. Yeah, Gielan, to your point, I do think that it shows that other wings of the Republican Party, especially well-funded wings like the Club for Growth, which is kind of this anti-tax organization aligned with the more Tea Party wing, you know, to, to throw back to the 2010 election cycle. When they decide to go for it and go head to head against Trump, they can be competitive. It was a close race. Fans only beat Mandel, the club's endorsed candidate, by eight points. So I do think that it shows, I guess, some weakness, if you want to call it that, but also at the same time, I mean, he did go head to head and beat them, which is significant. You know, I also think that a lot of the ads against Vance focused on his past as an anti-Trumper during the 2016 primary and general election. He was one of those people who was like, Trump does not represent the Republican Party that I know and love. And this was the focus of a lot of negative ads against him, too. So I think that there was probably an element of people who maybe didn't think that he was as sincere of a kind of a Trumpy guy as Trump was necessarily telling people that he was. And somebody like Mandel, who has also fashioned himself as someone very Trumpy, has thrown a lot of conservative red meat, I think would have gotten a lot of that vote as well. I think you can make the argument both ways. It's kind of a glass half full, half empty situation for either Trump or other members of the party. A lot has been made, right, around Vance's anti-Trump statements, particularly the ones he made in the 2016 election, as he was very critical of Trump, didn't support Trump, wasn't never Trumper. But a lot of the same anti-government sentiment that we saw in Vance's campaign for Senate this time was really present from the outset of even his book, which he's, you know, earned a lot of fame for, Hillbelly Elegy. So I do wonder to some extent how much of this pivot we saw from Vance 
was really a pivot versus just maybe more forcefully leaning into Trumpism. I think a lot of those strains were already there within Vance. So one other thing I'd add is that it wasn't just that Vance got the endorsement from Trump, which obviously helped a lot. He also got a lot of cash from Peter Thiel, the billionaire who has sort of gotten into bankrolling Trumpy political candidates recently. And so I think that's something else to watch. I mean, obviously, this was a good win for him tonight. And he's thrown his weight behind other candidates in upcoming primaries. And so I think that's another factor to pay attention to here. Vance really needed that money when it came in. And it seems like this could be a factor going forward. Yeah, something to watch in Arizona's primary. Trump hasn't endorsed yet, but Teal has gone ahead and put a lot of money behind Blake Masters. So maybe we'll see him pull ahead there. Nathaniel, you mentioned in passing that you expect J.D. Vance to win the general election and ultimately be a senator. What does the general election dynamic look like? Of course, Tim Ryan was not facing a very competitive Democratic primary. He's been running essentially as if he was running in the general election since the beginning of his campaign, really tacking towards the center and in many ways taking a lot of Trump's more populist talking points on China and the post-industrial Midwest, talking about adding more police instead of defunding the police. He even went so far as to say that masks suck. And so he's really breaking with, I think, Democrats in a lot of ways. You already answered this to some degree, but how close could that get him to a competitive race in Ohio? I'm not a believer. Sorry, Democrats. Yeah, Tim Ryan has this very kind of tough guy, working class, blue collar persona. We saw that during the hot second that he ran for president in 2020. But Ohio is a Republican-leaning state. It has a 538 partisan lean of R plus 12. So that by itself would say that Republicans are favored. Then you add in the Republican-leaning national environment. You add in the fact that Tim Ryan, I mean, on paper, maybe he looks like that. And I think that's what a lot of pundits say. But his actual track record isn't that good. He, in his congressional district in 2020, only ran 1.5 points ahead of Joe Biden. So he doesn't really have a track record of winning over those Trump voters, at least not many of them. So I don't think this race is going to be close in the end. This was an analysis done looking at presidential elections, to be sure. But it was from NBC News. It published just a few days ago. And it was looking at the number of rural counties that Democratic presidential candidates have won since Clinton. And I think it's just it's staggering the drop off you've seen. So Clinton in 96, he won 1,117 rural counties. Obama won 455. So already a dramatic drop. And then Biden kind of has a similar appeal and pitch to voters that we will see from Ryan about trying to be a little bit more working class. He only won 194 rural counties. This is midterm environments, not a presidential election, but this is a tall order for Ryan and a really hard pitch, I think, for him in a state like Ohio. All right. So we spent most of the time on the Ohio Senate race, and I think that's fair enough, as we've discussed. Were there any other primary races that caught your attention tonight in terms of what they told us about the dynamics within the two parties? 
There were a handful of interesting congressional races, for sure. Trump's endorsed candidates prevailed in both the 7th District and 13th District in the Republican primaries in Ohio. They didn't really face super strong opposition, but Trump will get some allies in Congress out of this. And notably, in particular, one of those seats is going to be the replacement for former Representative Anthony Gonzalez, who is, of course, one of the Republicans who voted for impeachment. So you could consider this kind of a anti-Trump to pro-Trump flip, if you will. Another interesting race, one of the ones that actually hasn't been resolved yet is in the 9th district in Ohio. This is a competitive Democratic held district that became more Republican in redistricting. So the incumbent is Representative Marcy Kaptur, and she's actually the longest serving woman in House history. But she's going to face probably the toughest race of her career here in 2022. But right now, the leading candidate is J.R. Majewski, who actually attended the January 6th riot and has ties to QAnon, which obviously, you know, is not the kind of candidate you want to put forward if you're trying to win over swing voters in a swing district. So you'd have to think that Captor would be thrilled to get him as an opponent. That said, the more moderate alternative in that race, Teresa Gavarone, is only a couple points behind and this race hasn't been called yet. So that's the, the race that I am still watching tonight. One other race that stood out to me is this year in particular, we're going to be tracking more attorney general and secretary of state races, just given what we have seen in terms of the big lie among Republicans or the effort to delegitimize the 2020 presidential result. And so tonight we saw secretary of state Frank LaRose win his reelection in the primary for the GOP. And he's a particularly interesting case in that he initially came out in support of the 2020 election result, but it then since backpedaled that because he faced a primary challenge from the right and has gone on the record saying that President Trump is right to say voter fraud is a serious problem. One thing we're going to be tracking throughout this cycle is how, you know, Secretary of State candidates and Attorney General candidates do in the Republican primary and what that could potentially mean for the 2024 result. LaRose faced a challenger who was a full on believer in the big lie, and he actually easily dispatched him 65% to 35%. So that was a fairly encouraging result for the normal democratic process, um, given that LaRose has defended the result of the 2020 election. Right. But it's so interesting, as you say, Nathaniel, like normal, but also so indicative of where the party is headed in the sense that someone like LaRose, you know, initially full-throated defense of the 2020 election and had to backpedal that because of the challenge to the right. And I think we're going to see more of that this election cycle. Yeah. Listeners may remember, actually, we talked to Frank LaRose on this podcast a little less than two months before the 2020 election. And during a time when Trump was beating the drum of the illegitimacy of male voting, he was a pretty staunch defender of it and talking about how Republicans have used it for a long time in Ohio. Now he's a general election. He won the Republican primary. We'll see where things go from here. But let's move on and talk about that draft Supreme Court opinion. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. First and foremost, Amelia, this is a draft. I mentioned at the top how Chief Justice John Roberts framed it. How should we think about the legal opinions described in it, given those caveats? This is likely not what will come out of the court, even if they ultimately do overturn Roe. The way it works is that the justices will vote in a private conference, and then they'll circulate draft opinions. People will write dissents in response to the majority. This draft opinion that was leaked by Alito was dated February. So it's clearly in the middle of that process where he might circulate this and some of the other conservatives might say, hey, we're on the same side here, but I really don't like the way you put this thing. You know, this is part of the legal argument, like I need you to change it or tone it down. On the other hand, what it signals is that five conservatives voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. And while we don't know what the ultimate result will be, the fact that that happened, I think, is pretty stunning. We had some information before this, which was the oral arguments in this case last fall. Should we expect that sort of regardless of the caveats of that editing process, that the Supreme Court is prepared to overturn Roe v. Wade? We always knew that this was a live possibility after the oral argument. I sort of went into that expecting that maybe Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban would get upheld, but the justices would try to sort of preserve Roe in some way so that they don't have the big headline that says Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade a couple months before the midterms. That is obviously Chief Justice John Roberts' preferred tack. He is anti-abortion rights, but he is also very much a believer and sort of shoring up the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court and overturning one of the only precedents that I think most Americans can name. I mean, not a great thing for the Supreme Court's legitimacy, but it was pretty clear in those oral arguments that the other five conservatives were really open to the idea of overturning Roe. And while it feels stunning, and it is stunning. I mean, this is this is a hugely important precedent, and it's been around for a long time. It's been around for almost 50 years, and so overturning it would be a huge deal. You know, I think it's also not that surprising, because this has been the goal of the conservative legal movement for several decades now. There has been a concerted effort to get justices onto the court who will overturn Roe versus Wade, regardless of what the downstream consequences are, regardless of what public opinion is, because they believe that it's wrong. And Alito, in fact, said that in the draft opinion. He said, we can't think about things like a political backlash or public opinion. That's not our job here. Our job is to say whether this is in the Constitution or not. Rationally, it's not that surprising. We were very much prepared for this to happen in a couple months. And if this is ultimately the court's decision, I will not be surprised. As you mentioned, it is not, as Alito says, the Supreme Court's responsibility to think about public opinion or political consequences in his eyes. That's our job. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about the public opinion and 
political consequences in terms of how the two parties and their voters might react. What do Americans think about this? Understanding that this may not be the final opinion, but if Roe were to be overturned, what would Americans think about it? So Nathaniel and Sarah, you you can jump in here on this too, but Americans overall, a majority oppose overturning Roe. And I think what the Supreme Court could do if, if they end up issuing an opinion that's along these lines, it could ultimately lead to a situation that's even worse in terms of public opinion than just overturning Roe, because a bunch of states are going to ban abortion almost immediately. And those bans have been getting more and more extreme. So it used to be the case that there were these pretty standard exemptions for abortion laws. Abortion would be banned, but you could get an abortion in cases of rape, in cases of incest, if the life of the mother was at risk, sort of like these edge cases that felt important to a lot of people in polls. Like you see meaningful differences sometimes when you ask questions about whether you think abortion should be broadly legal or whether it should be legal in these specific cases. Those exemptions are not in a lot of the bans that are being passed now. What we're seeing more and more is just straight up abortion bans. And that is not popular. When you look at polls, and I did a story last year where I looked at a bunch of different ways of asking the question, somewhere between 80 to 90% of Americans think that abortion should be legal in at least some cases. So if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, and then a number of states, which I think they're very likely to do, some of them have laws that will do this automatically, make abortion illegal in pretty much every case, that is not going to be a popular scenario at all. And I would just add to that, that one thing Amelia has also tracked is it's not just that legislators and governors are banning abortion in their state. They're also increasingly trying to threaten other states, generally speaking, blue states that provide abortions that would accept then patients coming from their state. Missouri right now, you know, the law there has not been passed, but there is a proposal that lawmakers would take aim at anyone who's trying to aid a Missouri resident to get an abortion. As Amelia is saying, the fight we're seeing around abortion and outlawing it in this country is escalating in really severe ways that we haven't seen previously. There's always been this thread underlying American politics that has pushed to outlaw abortion. But the way in which this is radicalizing, preventing abortion in every single instance from rape to incest to the mother's life being in danger to then trying to, you know, legislate what other states are doing, it's just a dramatic escalation of this fight. Yeah. And I mean, the the place where it's going to go after this is also a debate over fetal personhood. And that's also a much more extreme corner of the debate. And I should add, the Supreme Court sort of has a lot of rhetoric about, like, we need to send this issue back to the states. The Supreme Court never should have decided this. I don't know if they believe that. This issue is coming straight back to them in several different forms, in the form of the laws that Sarah was just describing, where states are trying to legislate beyond their boundaries, in the form of fetal personhood laws, in other stuff. It's all coming straight back to the Supreme Court. So this is not the last time we will hear from them on abortion. And if they genuinely think that they are ridding themselves of this issue, too bad for them, I guess. Part of the political dynamic of the abortion debate over the past however many decades has been that we see in opinion polling 
Republican voters say they're more motivated by the issue of abortion than Democrats. And perhaps that makes sense. Given a constitutional protection for abortion, that would be the party that feels more aggrieved. Is there an expectation that this will put the shoe on the other foot in the sense that people who are supportive of abortion rights feel like the aggrieved party and are suddenly more motivated in similar ways that the conservative movement has been motivated over the past 50 years? And is there any evidence to expect that to be the case? Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. I think you have started to see that in a smattering of polls already, for instance, after Brett Kavanaugh's nomination and confirmation. One poll that I thought was particularly kind of striking along these lines was a CNN poll from January. It asked Americans how they would feel if Roe v. Wade were overturned. Overall, 35% say that they would be angry. 25% said they would be dissatisfied. Just 12% said they would be satisfied. And 14% said they would be outright happy. But when you look at the partisan breakdown of that, 51% of Democrats said they would be angry, which is significantly more than the 29% of Republicans who said that they would be happy about it. I do think that, of course, being angry, as we've seen, especially over the Trump era, has been a you know very motivating force for turning out and doing something in American politics. And you see this, obviously, this numeric disparity between Democrats and Republicans. So I could absolutely see the shoe being on the other foot. This was a piece Michael Tesler, who contributes to 538 from time to time, wrote back in the fall of 2021. But it was right after Texas's abortion ban went into effect, which restricts most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. And what he found in polls at the time was you were already seeing this partisan split that Nathaniel's describing with Democrats being more motivated. And I thought a point that he made in that piece that was pretty interesting and could be applicable to now is, you know, something we saw in the 2018 midterms in particular, were Democrats being more energized by this fact of like, is the Affordable Care Act under threat? What will Republicans try to do going forward in terms of dismantling it? Do we see something similar with abortion? To be clear, up until now, we really haven't seen that. And there have been a lot of pieces over the years that kind of say, Democrats are going to be energized about abortion. And I think something Amelia has written about for the site and argued very articulately is that it really probably is going to take a world in which we have abortion repealed and are living with the consequences of that for months for Democrats to maybe be motivated to that extent. But I mean, I think by the same token, as Roe has been the law of the land for nearly 50 years, we just don't have a recent example that we can point to for a precedent that has been the law for that long and what the ramifications would then be in a post-Roe world. I think that's the big question, Sarah. What does this look like if it actually happens? And what are people's experiences like? I wrote a piece recently about how waiting times are already increasing for an abortion, and that's going to affect people trying to get abortions in blue states, people who, who think they might not be touched by whatever Texas is doing on abortion. On the other hand, it could play out differently. Abortion pills are now available for people to get online and drive over state lines. And that wasn't the case before 1973. So there's kind of been a hypothetical quality to all of these questions when you're asking Democrats how they feel if Roe were overturned, because I think people just didn't think it was going to happen. And a lot of people, you know, I've never lived in a country where abortion wasn't legal. I don't know what that's like. So 
I think one of the big question marks, and obviously something we'll be tracking if this happens, is how does this actually affect people's lives? And do they feel those impacts in a meaningful way in time for it to shape their vote going into the midterms? I think the big question at the moment, there's a couple of things. This could have a long-term reshuffling effect on politics, and it could also have a short-term effect on politics. In the short term, what it has to compete with is inflation, COVID, war in Ukraine, all kinds of different things that rank highly in terms of voters' priorities in polling. In general, what are the circumstances, if any, in which an issue like abortion is at the top three of voters' priorities and actually shapes who's winning national elections, or even maybe in this case, what might be more significant is statewide or local elections. One of the obvious things is I think if women's lives and health are obviously being threatened by bans on abortion, which people in the abortion rights movement have obviously argued will be the case, and I think there's pretty significant empirical evidence that that could happen. I mean, another thing that I'm also watching and thinking about is how banning abortion will affect other kinds of health care that women get and need. It could have impacts on fertility treatments. It could have impacts on the kinds of contraception people can get, emergency contraception. So with the caveat that this is all very difficult to predict, I could see this move overturning Roe and then whatever the states do after that, having a bunch of unintended ripple effects that could actually affect quite a lot of people in ways that they aren't expecting. Again, like if this becomes a debate over something like fetal personhood, I think that becomes more difficult territory for Republicans to contend on. So we'll have to see what happens, but I'm a little bit skeptical that this is going to be the thing that saves Democrats going into the midterms. I am more than a little bit skeptical about that. As we've been saying, this would just be such a seismic change. I don't want to rule out the possibility that people do have a bigger reaction. I think, as Amelia wrote in her piece today, you know, one thing we're already seeing happen is that the states haven't really been waiting for the justices to make a decision. And what I mean by that is the Guttmacher Institute, which is a nonprofit research group that supports abortion rights, has been tracking the number of restrictions that have been proposed this year. And they have found 536 between January and April 14th of this year. And now, to be clear, a lot of those haven't been passed into law. But they're on the books, they're being considered, and a lot of red states are signing these into laws. A lot of Democratic states have put in safeguards to protect the right to abortion. I think there's more that we'll see done in that avenue because to the point earlier that maybe Democrats haven't thought that this would actually happen has stopped a lot of states from taking those kind of actions. But regardless, I guess, what happens in the midterms, I think we're going to see this continue to play out in the states. And I think increasingly, you know, this is something we've talked about on the podcast before, but we're moving towards states where it's very different realities on a variety of different issues, whether that's gun ownership, right to abortion, voting, what you can learn in schools. And increasingly, that American experience isn't really going to be quite as universal if it ever was. It is getting late and we've covered a lot of ground 
We have more to cover on both fronts, both primaries and the Supreme Court. Of course, the actual rulings we expect will be coming down in June. Could be earlier. (laughs) Or earlier. Okay, yeah. We will be back. We will be talking about this some more. But let's leave it there for now. Thank you, Amelia, Nathaniel, and Sarah. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Droop. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Our intern, Emily Vineski, is on audio editing. And Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.